Today we are speaking with Kat Cressida, the official voice of Dee Dee from Dexter's Laboratory, the voice match of Jessie the Cowgirl in various Toy Story projects, the very first woman to be the voice of the NFL draft on ESPN and the Super Bowl, the Black Widow Bride from the Haunted Mansion rides in Disneyland and Disney World, and an amazing life-affirming story as now a public speaker. Kat Cressida, how are you today? I am great, Robert. Thank you for asking, and it is an honor to be on Fanboy Nation this morning. The pleasure is all ours. So, Kat, tell us what it's like having been trained in Shakespearean acting moving and moving over to on-camera work that led you to voiceover. Um, it's a great question, and, you know, obviously, especially with technology advancing so incredibly over the past 20 years from when I first got into voiceover, because back when I started, people didn't. Only a few had home studios, and those were mostly the big trailer voice guys who were just connecting by ISDN doing all the movie trailers. Um, and now, of course, everybody and their mom can set up a little home shop. So it's transitioned a lot since I started. But what still remains, I guess, a really important part of it when people ask, how do you get into it? You know, how do you become one? Oh, that sounds so fun. What a great, you know, et cetera is I usually say exactly what you and I were talking about a little bit before, which is that you have to have the acting training um, unless all you're going to be doing is radio IDs and imaging where you're just dropping, you know, identifications or being an announcer voice, but a really strong core base of acting, um, whether that's improv or uh, acting classes. And then of course, taking mic technique uh, classes, but what's, you know, what what happened for me in transitioning from one to the other was taking a lot of good classes. So when I made the decision, I, I trained in acting my entire life and like from the age of four had been doing musical comedy and summer camp stock and all the adorable things one does up until the age of 15. My parents kept saying, when are you going to get serious about what you really want to be doing? And I was like, what's up? This is what I want to be doing. Um, and then sort of made that decision decision, as you mentioned, to become an agent. Um, I think what happened was I hit college graduation. I went to UC Berkeley and suddenly all those years of parents and grandparents and aunts and cousins saying, so what are you going to do when you when you grow up? What are you really going to do? Kind of caught up with me and I went, well, I can't be an actor. I guess I have to do something practical. So I um, was lucky to be accepted into the training program of one of the big the big three in Hollywood, one of the big talent agencies, and actually represented uh, writers, screenwriters, made it up to junior agent representing writers. And then at the ripe old age of 25, <laughs> kind of went, well, this has been great. And it's really fun to have the power of, you know, handing someone a business card and suddenly, you know, everybody's returning your calls and all of that. But I really missed acting. Uh, anybody, anybody who's trained in acting for their entire growing up period knows that it's a bit of an addiction and it was really hard to break. And so I figured eh, I'm 25, I'll give it till 30. And if nothing happens, then I'll go back to doing something quote unquote practical. And I got really lucky. That was sort of the end of the nineties and must see TV was all the rage. And there was a ton of television exploding and cable was Fox had just started. Uh, Simpsons had been on for a few years and so there was a lot more that was starting to become available. And then the CW started doing original programming. So it, it was uh, a good time to break into it. And I got very lucky and booked a lot of guest stars and co-stars. And then after three years of that kind of went, well, 
I think I've done the on-camera thing, and I think I'm ready for something else. And I was lucky that a celebrity that I was co-starring with suggested voiceover. And that was at the very end of the, the 90s, entering the aughts. And that was the day you decided to put your hair in a ponytail and said, you know what? I don't need to be uh, completely made up and in the chair for three hours. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that. Um, when I first started do, going out for uh, for voiceover, and back then you went out a lot more, again, because we didn't all have home studios. So we were showing up at our agencies every morning or going to casting directors. I got teased a lot for being having makeup on and having my hair done because the real veterans were like, You'll learn. <laughs> Before you know it, you'll be throwing on sneakers and sweats like the rest of us. It took, a, it took a while to sort of ease into that. But even still, I mean, as a female, you still want to show up looking like you didn't just roll out of bed. We actually talked to uh, Rebecca Romaine O'Connor about that at uh, Comic-Con last year because she was the voice of Lois Lane in the in one of the uh, Justice in uh, Superman, um, Reign of the Superman. And uh, her husband, uh, Jerry O'Connell, was super was Superman, and everybody showed up in just their superhero T-shirts and jeans, and she was just completely decked out. I was like, how is that fair? Well, it's, it's Hollywood. Sort of the, there there is that standard. But at least you were able to tone things down a little bit and, you know, show up in sweats and a ponytail and not be dolled up all the time. I would say that's probably true. <laughs> depends on Depends on who's showing up on the other end. But, yeah. uh, okay. And if they're doing like background documentary vocals for the DVD bonuses or whatnot. Well, even even going into just my booth, even if it's an ISDN or a or a Source Connect session or phone patch, I still I'll still put myself together. To me, it's important to feel like I'm in that professional space and not just hanging out in my T-shirt. You know, everybody's different. And um, I even know some guys who feel that it's really important to show up looking professional because they feel that's their that's how they feel good is looking put together. And uh, it, it depends on the person, I think, and the performer. Makes sense. You know, we want you to be comfortable and you want to be happy. So if that's what does it for you, go for it. Yep. Now, you've also been on Phineas and Ferb. You've done other things for Disney besides Jesse. You were the voice of Elektra in one of the Marvel video and Marvel heroes. Talk a little bit about traditional animation voice acting versus video game voice acting. Because a lot of people think it's the same thing, but there seems to be two different worlds at this point. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it depends on the project and the universe that that project lives in. There's some video games that are very, very animated, and they want it to have a feel of larger than life. Then there's some animation these days that's more real than a lot of the video games, where they want it to sound you know, like you're barely, I wouldn't say mumbling, but very, very conversational. So it really depends on the direction of, of the project and sort of the universe the project lives in. And you had mentioned that you had been Didi, <clears throat> excuse me, since just after the the pilot. What you know, Dexter's Laboratory has had its own, uh, you know, cult following in a sense. I mean, it, everybody loved the show for so long. It ran uh, what more than five, six years, I think. Uh, what's it like when adults now recognize you twenty plus years later as the voice of Didi, and they have their kids with them? Um, cool. <laughs> everybody's different and everybody obviously has different reasons for why they're passionate about something. I tend to not think too much about the stuff that's already that I've been lucky enough and honored to be a part of from the past. I tend to always be sort of, you know, especially because of, you know, you know, my story, uh, what I've been lucky enough to sort of move through and emerge from. I tend to not 
spend too much time thinking about the past. In Dexter's laboratory, I was so lucky to be in at the very beginning of my voiceover career. It's always great when someone is fond of that character, along with the many, many other, you know, different anime characters or animation characters I've been lucky enough to, to voice and video game characters. I still have people on Twitter referencing video games that I did 18 years ago. And I'll literally say to my social media manager, what are they talking about? Like, what, what are they referencing? And she'll say, oh, they're referencing vampires from <laughs> 2002. Fans are fans in whatever they're fans of because they really love that. So they feel a, a presence and an immediacy to it that I don't necessarily always, you know, I'm not right there with them when they're thinking of the same thing, if that makes any sense. So a lot of times, depending on the fan con or depending on the event, um, what's also really interesting that I've, that I've come to discover, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who's got this situation, but what I've become quote unquote known for the characters that have emerged as being, the cult favorites or the fan favorites. Sometimes I'm very surprised by what so many people will have created such a, you know, fan following for. Uh, Babylon 5 comes up so much these days, and it always takes me by surprise because, to my recollection, it was this cute little sci-fi jaunt that I was lucky enough to do 25 years ago. You know, but people have, have grown increasingly more and more sort of talking about that at fan cons. And then, of course, there's the people who only care about Disney, who are Disney addicts through and through. And that's what they want to talk about. And that's what they want to focus on. So it'll be interesting to get into a whole conversation about that side. And then there's people who only care about video games and they don't care about my ESPN or what I've done for Disney or anything else. They just want to focus on the certain video games. Well, the great part about Babylon 5 is, is you didn't have to change your name. Yes, that was that was funny that they did that. <laughs> and yeah. somewhere there's a trading card of that, of Cat the bartender that uh, I got handed twice to sign. And each time I went, where did you get that? Clearly they were printed like years ago. And a few of them survived. Well, that's fantastic. And the fact that someone still holds on to such a treasured memory adds everything or makes it more worthwhile. <laughs> I, I've always said I'll have to go back and actually watch the show because at the time I did not think that it was going to become the cult fave. But, you know, good for them. It was it, it obviously resonated very deeply for a lot of people. Yeah. And to get back to your Dexter's Laboratory question, I'm just always uh, so aware of the fact that I didn't create the character. You know, Gendy has everything to do with how all of our characters sounded and performed. He was very clear on the comedy and the humor of it and the direction. He did a brilliant job. So it's always just lovely when someone says it, but I am also, I don't take credit for it. Usually I very clear on the fact that this was one of my first gigs and was lucky to be both under Gendy's direction and with such incredible voice talent. Well, I mean, it was an amazing series and we're sad that it, you know, had to come to an end, but like everything else it does, you've, uh, Marvel, except for the Marvel universe that yeah. will never come to an end. No, Marvel, you know, Disney and Marvel have become so synonymous with each other in the past five years that we know nothing's going to change anytime soon. True. You had touched upon, you know, you have been doing uh, TED Talks recently and that, um, you know, you become a public speaker. Would you be okay in getting into the topic of what led to you becoming a public speaker and the TED Talk? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for asking that. It's definitely a newer part 
of my story and I'm honored. I'm always honored when a major, major fan conglomerate like you guys um, or some of the others I've been honored to speak with in the re- past few weeks cares about that side. I'm always like, really? They want to get into that? Because it's, it's the more human heavy part of it all. But as you also very graciously said, it, it's part of the whole of the story. Well, we want you to be able to tell your story. Um, you ha- you had found a tumor in the side of your cheek that they had told you was a benign cyst? Um, so the way that it had happened was for years, probably two or three years leading up to, you know, what became the heaviest, darkest part of the story. But for the two to three years previous, whenever I would mention that I felt this slight sensation behind my jaw and, hey, can you just check it out? Can we get it checked out? It, it kind of got poo-pooed. I mean, a lot of the doctors... Unfortunately, all of the mail um, just ha- turned out to be that kind of kept saying, oh, you're being dramatic or don't worry about it. You actors have a very vivid imagination and didn't feel that it was anything even worth doing the tests for. So it took uh, a few years of me continuously bringing it up to finally get referred to sort of a skin specialist. And I didn't know I went to a dentist also because I didn't know what was causing that weird little catch behind my jaw. It could have been a dental thing. It could have been really anything. I didn't know. But I kept getting told it's probably nothing. It's probably just a a benign cyst, a little cyst. And it wasn't until I really pushed for them to um, authorize an MRI that that started to begin the unfolding of what it really was. Did you at least get an apology from some of these doctors that sat there and said, oh, don't worry about it, you're being overly dramatic? Because uh, that, that's rather insulting. You know what's going on with your own body more so than they do in various aspects. So, like, how does that reaction come about where you feel you're not being heard, and then once they finally have the information go, is it just an oops moment and they move on? <laughs> well, Robert, that's a really great question, um, but it's a it's a far-reaching question. So, of course, in this era of um, lot, you know, Everybody's lawsuit happy in America. I think everybody can agree that that seems to be unfortunately where the culture has gone. So admission of fault uh, is not something one encounters often with a doctor because the moment they do that, they're opening themselves up to uh, to a suit. Um, sadly, this is part this is the main drive for why I've been lucky enough to start merging over into the public speaking and lucky enough to be invited to do as you mentioned, the TED Talk a few months ago at Royce Hall and doing other public speaking is that, unfortunately, we're so trained. I think you would probably agree with me, at least in the American culture, the Western culture, we're so trained to sort of trust our doctors. I mean, why shouldn't we? They've gone through years of medical uh, training. They've been in residency. We've all seen that portrayed on various you know, TV shows and movies, how hard it is to become a doctor. And they've got years and years and years of experience with diagnoses. So when they tell you something, if you haven't been through an awful experience yet, you trust and you want to believe that they know what's best for you and that they've got your best interest at heart and that you can rely on what they're giving you. And what I had to keep learning was not only can they be very fallible, but because of this culture of being afraid to misdiagnose or to botch a surgery or be sued for medical negligence, 
a lot of times they won't even get close to addressing what's really going on. And that's partly what I've started to address in my speaking is that if you feel like you said, if you feel like something is wrong, it's on you to really press it. And just because you get told, oh, don't worry about it. Again, if you believe something's not right, keep pressing it until you get a clear answer. Until enough tests have come back telling you that there really is nothing wrong or that you feel like you're getting the accurate diagnosis. And you would probably agree with me. I think men, men in this culture tend to be a little bit guiltier of this than women in general. Most of us don't want to hear a negative diagnosis. Well, no, none of us want to hear a negative diagnosis. And a lot of us don't want to even be bothered to go to the doctor, right? I mean, I've got a, a lot of male friends where even when they're seem like they're practically dying from some virus or flu, won't go to the doctor. A lot of us don't want to hear the bad news or be bothered with it because we've got real life to worry about. And what I had to learn the hard way was that is real life. Not only is that real life without any sort of clear future of wellness, nothing else really matters. But you kind of have to learn it the hard way. And unfortunately, the doctors that I was seeing, it took a long time for them to start addressing what was really going on beneath the surface. Is there some sort of weird vindication in, ha, I was right, but oh my God, how terrible this is? No, there's no. I mean, my journey took many years to resolve, and I was very lucky to finally find a great surgeon who would, because I got, not only did I get misdiagnosed, even once the tests were confirmed that there was something dangerous going on, it still took a long time to find a surgeon who, A, would take on the surgery, and B, um, was clear on what exactly was going on because it was a very rare form of cancer. But I would say anybody who survived, I hope anybody who survived through something that scary, you're not really looking at, ha, I was right. You're just trying to figure, you're, you're trying to get back to life and you're trying to move forward. What I've chosen to do is at least take six years of struggle and challenges and confusion and disorientation and try to hopefully help others with some sort of a roadmap if they ever face something remotely similar so that they don't feel as alone in it. Because unfortunately I had nothing to reference. Um, there, there weren't a lot of previous known cases, none that showed up in the, in the face or the jaw area. And even my own surgeon who was incredible had to give me an A, B and a C version of what I might emerge with. And the C version was not good. It was barely, barely living. So um, if, if that helps uh, address what you're saying, I, I don't feel vindicated. I feel grateful, first and foremost, that I made it here. Um, and then even more grateful that people are reaching out saying, please share your story because it will help others. And me grateful finally to have the courage to do that because it took a while for me to to find the voice for that. In a sense, I was just so glad to be back to life and doing voiceover and living what I considered, quote unquote, my life that I didn't even want to address the bad stuff. I kind of wanted to leave it in the dust. But of course, you never really do. If you're lucky to survive something like that, you never really leave it behind. It's always now a part of you. What's the first reaction when you get this news? 
I mean, I brought up vindication as if, you know, like this weird competition of, ha, I was right, now what's next? But what really is next when the diagnosis is given? Is it instant plan of attack? Do you go home and mull over it for a few days and try to figure out how you break the news to your family? What's the next step after the diagnosis? Or at least for you, what was the next step? Oh, such good questions. I mean, of course, it's going to it's probably going to vary a lot depending on the diagnosis. As I I sometimes make the comment and then I regret making the comment as soon as I do. But I've I've said before, what's unfortunate about what I had was it wasn't some more clearly understood form of cancer. And the reason I say I regret saying it is because no version of that diagnosis is a good one. No matter what the diagnosis is, even if it's, hey, we caught it early and it's low-level breast cancer or it's low-level skin cancer, the moment you hear the word cancer or tumor or sarcoma, you feel like it's game over. It's a scary thing to hear addressed with a doctor looking directly into your eyes about you. And that's another thing is that I had I had been fortunate to to be a a caretaker for other people. You know, I had people in my family or close friends who were going through some version of cancer. And I thought I knew what it was like because I was so close to them. And you learn you don't really know any of it until you've actually gone through it. To, to answer your question, I would say that the next step it depends a little bit on what the diagnosis is. But if it's something as large looming as it's a rare kind of cancer and we're just beginning to understand it. I would encourage anybody to do as many consults as you possibly can from reliable sources, from, from people who have great reputations. And the way I finally found my surgeon was by calling the major hospitals. I literally called USC, UCLA, Cedar sinai uh, Sloan Kettering in New York. I think I'm pronouncing that right the Mayo Clinic, and asked if they had on record any doctors who dealt with rare sarcomas. Some of them, surprisingly, some directories or, you know, uh, administration offices didn't know because they don't necessarily list it that way. But you sort of start to play the game of connect the dots. So maybe you'll get to a great surgeon who specializes in this kind of cancer, and he doesn't specialize in your kind, but maybe he knows of somebody who does. And you just start making an awful lot of phone calls and doing a lot of research. You trust your gut a little bit, too. For example, I, I had about 13 horrific consultations that went the full gamut of, well, your cancer is so new, we really don't have an understanding of it, and therefore I probably shouldn't touch it, to you're already dead. This is fatal, and you've got maybe a year to three years. It's inoperable. I mean, I really faced every version, and these were from top, top specialists and surgeons in Beverly Hills in the Los Angeles area and one in New York. So I, I was getting the full gamut. On a gut level, I just kept thinking, there's got to be someone who, A, I hope there's someone who, A, really understands what this is and isn't sort of guessing at it, and B, feels that they want and can take it on. And luckily, that still small voice in me kept driving me for the six months of the research that led up to the surgery to finally find my my surgeon. Did you have to go as far as Europe in your search at, at any point? You know, a lot of people will go to Sweden for surgery or 
just so their voice would be heard. Because sometimes, as you said, you know, your male doctors dismissed your symptoms. That is a good question. I know that it took when we kept getting the biopsy back with the initial um, dermatological specialist who, by the way, kept joking that if he was a betting man, he put all his money in Vegas, that this was nothing. Unfortunately, there was a lot of that sort of stand-up comedian slash humorous approach to it, again, because they felt like maybe maybe because I was a female, maybe because I was an actor, I was being dramatic about it. But I was the one who finally, when the biopsy kept coming back as um, unquantifiable, it kept saying unidentifiable. And I kept saying, well, it's something. I mean, it's <laughs> there's something in there. And and at least we had at least I'd gotten the validation. Yes, it had shown up on the MRI as a dark mass, which, of course, was the good news and the bad news. So the MRI was was showing that there was something sizable back there hidden behind my jaw. But it was coming back from the American labs as unidentifiable. It took a lab in Germany to finally identify it as a very rare fatal form of sarcoma. So I would agree. I would agree with what you're saying is had I not gotten any surgeon in America to A, understand it, or B, be willing to take it on, that probably would have been my next step is to start looking at European specialists because, as you, as you rightfully point out, they're a little bit, little bit more wise and a little more open just because the uh, – what's it? Not the FD. What is it? Our What's our medical standard? Uh, ADA. Is it the AD? Well, there's a few of them, obviously. That's, right. that's the dentist's office. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever it is that that quantifies that something is medically treatable in America, that that surgeries have been approved. You know, you have to get something approved for it to be covered by insurance. Right. Of course, in Europe and other countries, they're they're looser on that. They have more of an attitude of if it needs to be operated on, it needs to be operated on, and it's going to get covered, whatever it is. But in America, that's not the case. So that probably would have been my next step if I hadn't been lucky enough to get connected with Dr. Alessi through Cedar sinai Hospital. I know your recovery wasn't easy. And there was certain issues where insurance didn't want to cover reconstructive surgery for you. Yeah. How does that go about where this is a serious, life-threatening medical procedure that you've had done, and now they just want to leave you scarred and essentially naked to the world? Yeah, Robert, I, again, you put these very well. There is no, I mean, there's no real clean, clear answer to that other than, you know, obviously a shame on them and B, it was a battle that is still being fought and needs to be fought by more people, I think, for the tide to really turn. But A, because it was such a rare initial diagnosis that required thinking outside the box, certainly by my surgeon. Um, and there were three surgeons uh, t- in total that stood by during those 10 hours, um, Dr. Alessi, the primary one, and then two backup high-end plastic surgeons in case things went really south during the surgery. But uh, unfortunately, as as the movie cliche goes from The Rainmaker, you know, a lot of the insurance companies will just try to keep fighting something regardless of the proof or regardless of what the patient went through because they don't have the code for it or they don't recognize it as medical necessity. And as you said, it's not hard math if you're uh, an on-camera talent or a voiceover talent that A, you need your face and B, you need your voice to be whole. 
to make your living and to come back to life in full. Plus, I spent 25 years paying in my premium because of my acting. So you would think, you know, you would think it would have been an easy connect the dots. Well, she's an actor and this is how she's got her health insurance. So maybe we should really be aggressive in making sure she can return to being an actor. But that wasn't the case. I faced a lot of naysaying and a lot of pushback. Um, and it took a lot of a lot of angels out of nowhere to help fight the battle with me, as well as an unusual amount of sort of aggressive pursuit to get them to pay attention to the fact that this needed to be addressed. And some of it is still in in action. Some of it still hasn't been resolved. And I don't want anybody. If I made it this far and been lucky to make it this far, I feel like it's on me to make sure that other people don't suffer this kind of uh, hell coming out of something that already was a hell. Thank you for using that word, because that's kind of the only without getting into, you know, the religious aspect of it. It was a, a living hell to try to make it through all of that and then be told, well, we're not going to cover some of the recovery. Well, I was actually going to ask you a question about about faith in regard. Doesn't matter which one, if you prescribe to one or not. But do you turn to faith at some point? Do you curse God at some point? When does it sink in that this is cancer that's in my throat and I work using my voice? How much of a punch in the gut was that part along with whether you turned to faith or turned away from faith, if that played any aspect of the diagnosis? Well, everybody's individual and I, I never, I certainly never cursed the universe or again, there's what the movies have taught us. You know, and what a good book teaches us about how people respond, and that's done for for dramatic effect. I'm a firm believer that when it happens to you personally, it's it's a lot more personal and it's a lot more intimate than these big grandiose cues. People, this has been an, um, a question I get asked a lot that that is sort of similar, but not quite to what you're asking is, wow, you were so heroic and courageous. You know, what gave you the courage? To which I always say there was no moment of courage. There was no bravery involved. Um, that's, that's a, a subjective adjective, which is very gracious of some people to assign to it. But in, if it's you from the inside out, all you're doing is surviving and there's no soundtrack cueing a, a heroic moment or any light shift or zooming close up that tells you that this is the moment that you will. It's nothing like that. It's. You're, you're in it and you are just doing your best to put the pieces together. And I guess I was lucky that I had enough presence of mind to just keep asking myself, okay, what's next? What do I have to do next? I suppose there are some personalities that might maybe give up at a certain point. Certainly, certainly that's what the health, you know, when it gets to that point, that's what the health insurance companies are betting on is that you'll give up and not keep fighting for the reimbursement. Or the payment, but there, there was nothing dramatic going on in terms of me questioning the stars or my destiny or, I don't even recall a moment where I asked why me. I'm sure I must have felt that at some point, you know, of course, if you're, <laughs> one moment you're just sort of being a carefree voice talent and thinking about building a family and doing all the quote unquote normal things one does living sort of an American lifestyle. There there was never a point where suddenly I was cursing the heavens. I just remember suddenly 
feeling my world flip upside down and just trying to orient myself constantly and figure out the next step much more on a much more intimate level. Uh, unfortunately, there were some complications with your surgery, though, and there was an infection at some point. And one of the things that I was reading said that you had a friend who is a makeup artist on The Walking Dead that helped you uh, with various concealants as you went back into the world. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that. I mean, it's not it's not funny. It's what's ironic is I haven't spoken to that amazing guardian angel who came to my aid uh, since then until last week, because there's a, a TV show that's reached out wanting to, you know, of course, tell tell a very entertaining version of all of this and tell the story through their lens. So I reached out to the makeup artist who, by the way, has now become <laughs> a top makeup artist for the Marvel Universe, ironically. So he's uh, he's working with some pretty high end, big super superheroes right now. But yeah. And he just happened to be your superhero. He was one of them. I would say my surgeon was the biggest, of course. But um, but he definitely was one of those guardian angels that I alluded to who came to my aid kind of out of nowhere. And yes, there were there was some that was while I still was what you would call disfigured from the surgery, Um, very swollen. I unfortunately, without this is not poetic license. This is the reality. They weren't letting me look in mirrors because I was so deformed from the initial surgery. Um, I looked like a cross between Frankenstein and the uh, elephant man because of all the swelling and uh, stitching. So, uh, of course, I was not going out at all uh, for the first several weeks. And then um, one of the more aggressive healing tactics that that my surgeon fortunately pushed onto me, but at the time felt very cruel was to go on short walks. I mean, you can imagine most of us just want to, of course, hide in bed for several months if we're going through that kind of pain and misery. But he felt it was important to stimulate the oxygen in my body and get the circulation going. So I was being forced to go out and I would literally cover my, I look like a hood rat was wearing sweats head to toe. And the only part of me that you could see was my nose. I had the hood, the hoodie, drawstring pulled so tightly you could only see my nose so I'd walk into a 7-Eleven or something and you couldn't even tell what gender I was because I was so completely covered up right around the time that I was finally starting the swelling was going down I had some meetings that were important not for me but for other uh, I was sort of helping manage and produce some things behind the scene prior to me being sick I had taken on some producing and development and was representing some people. And I felt it was my ethical obligation. Looking back, I think I'm nuts, by the way. P.S. If you're (laughs) surviving any serious surgery whatsoever, you have no ethical obligation to go to meetings in Hollywood. But for some reason, I think, A, I felt it was my obligation to help see those things through. And I was, you know, quarantined to my home and I couldn't do a lot of voiceover, of course, because of the swelling and how I looked, but I was wanting to feel like I was still a part of life. And so I pushed my surgeon really hard to okay and authorize me getting some sort of um, putting myself back together for a few hours to take some of these meetings and how could I do that and what would it look like? And it wasn't a conversation my surgeon, my surgeon was enthusiastic about, but I think he also felt it was important to my mental well-being and my sense of self to to feel like I was part of the world. 
And so he said, uh, if you can find someone to help you figure this out and it's not going to get in the way of what's healing, then I'll, I'll approve it. And I had to use surgical grade makeup and surgical grade tape first and foremost. And then it had to be all covered up and made pretty by someone who knew what they were doing. That turned out to be a special effects prosthetic makeup artist from The Walking Dead whose primary job all day long was to make people look the opposite, like they were disintegrating. And in his, in this case, he reverse engineered it to put me back together. And we joke, we used to joke and we call it the magical makeup spell because it would last for two to three hours and then it would start to disintegrate. And like Cinderella from the ball, I would have to race out of the meeting and race home before, um, all, you know, it's crazy. It's so weird to talk about, but yeah, that was part of the story was me having to figure out how to look whole for some of these meetings. Was this the first step back to normalcy in a sense was just getting out and going for the walks that led to you putting on the makeup and going to these meetings or was it after the swelling had gone down and you had received your reconstructive surgery? Is that when you started feeling whole again? Well, the reconstructive surgery, the main part of the reconstructive surgery happened at the time of the cancer surgery. That's why it was such a long surgery. We did everything. He, we, he and the other surgeons did everything all at once in terms of the major part. Then every December, up until last year, I've had to go back for minor reconstructive surgery. It's been a continuing process to let the body heal a little bit more and then take on more of it. So it's, that's kind of been a rolling ongoing thing. But the major part of it, I would say it was an ingenious <laughs> decision of my surgeon to force me to go out on walks, even though it felt like the complete opposite of what one should be doing, because at least it got me out into the world. At least I was getting some fresh air, which does a lot for your your mental state. And at least it was, I didn't feel so much like an alien. Because when you're quarantined, which I was for the better part of the first couple of months, just, just to protect the sutures, to protect the surgery, to protect myself from further complications, um, you, you feel completely cut off from everything. And I wasn't doing what I most loved doing, which was storytelling and voiceover and acting. So... All of it was integral to coming back to it. Mine was such a weird case. I would hope very few people would emerge as temporarily deformed and paralyzed as I was. But I would say that definitely the second stage of it, which was the makeup artist coming in and short little bursts of feeling, looking in the mirror and seeing some version of myself was definitely nice. Although, of course, I, I was still in pain and, and still swollen and knew that that was an illusion so I could see myself you look in the mirror and you see yourself but it feels you you know it's not real I knew that it was makeup and and prosthetics that were helping me to look like myself again anybody who's ever been through this can tell you you don't even though your surgeon tells you it will all eventually go back to normal you'll look you'll look pretty much like yourself eventually I didn't believe it because all you see is someone totally different in the mirror so I, I would encourage, again, anybody who's facing anything close to this, ask a lot of questions. Ask your surgeon, what what can I expect on the back end? What should I be prepared for? And and do as many life-affirming things as you possibly can during the short term, whatever that version is to you. If it's cooking, you know, break out the bakeware. If it's 
watching your favorite movies, do that. If it's going out on short hikes, do that. Everybody's individual. And for some people, of course, everybody experiences things differently. So there's no one pat answer. But ask yourself what's going to help you feel the most alive during those months of recovery and then try to do them. You went through a lot and it's a very dark situation in the beginning. And we're glad you made it out on the other end. Thank you. But during the darkest moments, a lot of people become or are abandoned. Not in some intentionally, some unintentionally. Who were some of the closest people to you? I know you said those makeup artist friend of yours uh, was there for you uh, post everything. But as you're going through the trenches, was there any one particular person or a, or a handful of people that sat there and sat with you through all of this? Well, that's a very good question um, and, a, and a personal one, but very appropriate the truth of this is, Robert, I think everybody's situation is going to be different. I wasn't lucky enough to have a husband, um, and I wasn't lucky enough yet to have established that kind of firm bond with a significant other. So I had to rely on, you know, dear friends. Um, I unfortunately don't have a lot of family um, left. So some people, of course, have very tight-knit, warm family cultures, and that would have been their support system. In my case, it was Friends. And what was really interesting was that this is partly what I addressed in the TED talk. When you when you when you go into something like this, which is a serious illness and serious surgery, in a sense, it's a kind of time machine. You're going to go into that time machine one person and you're going to come out of it at a different a different chronological point. Depending on what you've been through, it, you could feel like you've aged 10 or 20 years. And also, depending on the amount of time required for the recovery, you're also going to feel like life passed you by. If that makes any kind of sense, you step into a time capsule. And when you emerge, things are different. You're different. And the world, in a sense, of course, we know the world just keeps moving on. Um, and technology being what it is, something that wasn't even on the grid six months or a year ago suddenly can be the next hugest thing. So what's also interesting is that the is that the people that you your relationship to them prior to all this is going to be different coming out of it if it's something really serious. And luckily, I want to say for the record, I'm, as you pointed out, one of the lucky ones. I managed somehow to emerge on the other end of it, but there's still going to always be the emotional scars. That would be a lie. And I don't want anybody to ever go through something like this and expect that they're going to not have to deal with, that they're not um, normal or healthy because they're feeling things coming out of it. You carry some of that trauma with you, um, just as anybody who's lost someone they dearly love carries that with them. It, it stays a part of you for for good. It deepens you and you learn things and hopefully you learn to do something with it. But the people that I thought would really be there for me, a lot of them weren't. They didn't know how to handle the new disabilities. They didn't know how to handle the new me. Uh, they weren't, it's not who they had, at, you know, I guess the saying could be, it's not what they signed up for. I was a very lighthearted, uh, workaholic, um, driven, always energetic, always up for an adventure person going into it. And of course, going through what I went through, a different person came out the other side needing to find their way back. I hope one day to, and I've already taken on some of the, per you know, I found myself again in some ways, but then you also change as any life experience changes you. 
So it's a complex question, but I would say that it was interesting to see who stuck around and who actually emerged as someone that was a, a continual caretaker and who was not able to because they didn't yet have the tools to understand how to deal with that. And I don't blame or judge anybody because I often asked myself, if I had a dear friend who went through what I went through, who would I have been? You like to think the best version of you, but it's kind of life is going to teach you that you're going to you're going to find it out through life experience, not on uh, hypotheticals or watching a lot of great movies, which is had been my primary understanding of of a lot of this moving in, you know, prior to it was through books and movies and TV that I understood what serious illness was. And by being a caretaker to people who've gone through other versions of cancer. The surgery is complete. You have these issues. Your support circle is some people you didn't expect would be there were there. Some people that you did expect to be there weren't there. Now your voice is gone for a little while. How do you cope with not having your voice six months, one year, year and a half, however long it took to where you finally could be cat again? in a sense that you could speak and hear your natural voice rather than the gargled or scarred up one in comparison to just after the surgery? Um, all really good questions. So just for accuracy's sake, um, I didn't I didn't lose my voice for a full six months or a year. What happened was uh, the the actual and I don't I don't you know, of course, you've got a lot of information to cram in for this and you're doing an amazing job. But the what happened was for the surgery. And as a result of the surgery, I was temporarily paralyzed. They didn't know. No surgeon can tell you 100% how much of it will come back. Part of it is the body's natural response to the trauma. And part of it is a medically induced paralyzation to ensure that during this very, very difficult, difficult microscopic surgery, um, because the, the tumor was on my facial nerve. And that that's what was so dangerous. Had it breached my facial nerve, at all, and they ha and if they had to cut into the facial nerve to make sure I lived, I would never speak again. And that's what was so risky, because it literally was attached to the facial nerve. And this is on a microscopic level that they have to disattach it. So that's that's why a special microscope had to get flown in from Ger Germany. That's why a special room had to be assigned for a very long surgery. And that's why there were several surgeons on standby, because my surgeon didn't know how deep he would have to tear into me. And, and cut me up to actually succeed in removing what was going on. And because of where it was attached, I mean, that's just the dark irony. I needed my, I needed my face and, and voice and facial nerve to speak. And everybody does. And therefore, had they had to cut into it to save my life, I wouldn't have been able to speak again. So they temporarily paralyzed my face so that during the long surgery, I wouldn't uh, ref reflexively twitch which everybody does when they're put under. They, they reflexively twitch their foot or their finger or their face. It's just what the body does. You're still alive. No matter how deep under, you still have movement. And so they temporarily paralyzed me. And then it was a matter of how quickly would I recover and how, and how much would I recover. So that was also scary. And then, of course, there was the matter of other related things like uh, the gland for salivation, which I'm totally blanking on. It begins with a P, periodontic. Uh, there, there's a gland that's necessary to uh, keep the mouth doing what it's supposed to do. 
And that also was part of it, as well as the hearing. Um, I, this was all at the intersection of all these dangerous things. So to answer your question in, in short term, I just want to make sure I'm accurately saying I didn't lose my voice. I was temporarily paralyzed. And then, of course, had to figure out I was more aggressive than I was supposed to be in learning to talk again because I had to go through uh, speech therapy to learn how to speak again. And ironically, I was listening to my own recordings. Fortun- fortunately, being a voice talent, I had a ridiculous amount of recordings of myself. And so I was voice matching myself. And for the first few months, if I did need to record something, again, I wasn't doing very much of it, but for the contracts I was lucky enough to still have, I had to do several takes and edit them all together to make it sound whole and natural because I couldn't speak for any long stretch naturally. And we had, I had Jerry rigged the whole, my whole home studio just to record a few moments worth of things, but I couldn't do anything. I wasn't, I certainly couldn't do animation, you know, that requires a very energetic approach and a lot of movement and a lot of facial movement because I still had sutures and I still was part partially paralyzed. So it was a slow process getting back into everything. And even still, as you know, acting requires some amount of uh, connection to your emotions and joy and passion. And I certainly wasn't feeling any of that. If I was producing auditions, they probably weren't booking auditions because I, I just was so limited on my bandwidth at, at that point. So it was a long process coming back into any sense of where I'd been prior to the surgery. I would, I didn't even hear myself naturally laugh, organically laugh, like from something that was enjoyable for about two and a half years. The first time I heard it, it was a genuine surprise. Um, that's just weird to say, but that, that was the truth was that I, there was nothing to laugh at <laughs> is the best way to put it for the first couple of years. And that's an important part of, of anybody's recovery back to life is working your way through the healing emotionally and feeling like you're all, you're getting back the full spectrum of emotions. When you were first able to hear yourself talk for the, you know, or laugh, genuinely laugh that was you, you know, after a couple of years, was there a moment where you pulled back from the laughter and goes, oh, my God, I'm almost whole again. Or was it just something later on that evening? I think this is true of anybody who's gone through of this, although I only and I only say that listening to other people's stories, by the way, asking other people and hearing the greater stories. Once I had the courage to start asking people who would know, like therapists and psychologists who work with people day in, day out. Um, they're, they're the best people experts that we know of besides probably God and the Dalai Lama, you know, uh, in terms of what, what the broad spectrum of people experience. My understanding is that nobody who's gone through something really serious health wise, you don't have that kind of clarity in the moment. It's only in hindsight that you start to put the pieces together and start to really see the story as a whole. I, I didn't have any dramatic moment of, Suddenly, oh, I'm back to being me. There's never been any moment along the way, again, the way the movies portray it, where, where at least the audience knows that there's a moment of heroism about to happen or, or the heroes made the decision to go back to being a hero. We see that a lot in the Marvel universe where there's sort of this arc of the hero losing himself for a moment and then finding his way back, right? That's sort of a, an ongoing theme, I think, for a lot of them. There's nothing like that in real life that I've experienced. 
Um, it's been from other people sort of giving me being my mirror and saying, wow, tell me what that was like or when did you realize? And it's usually a long time afterward that the hindsight is clear enough that you go, oh, okay, so that that clearly was a moment when I turned a corner. And for better or for worse, the moment that I first heard myself laugh, it was surprising. But I don't think I, I stopped to think about all the ramifications of what that meant. And I don't, even, I don't think it necessarily meant anything other than, okay, great, that's the first moment that I've returned to laughing. Maybe there will be more coming up soon. It certainly was an indicator to me that I was now feeling things more and able to process them as as funny or enjoyable. I'm sure I was enjoying things prior to that, but I hadn't physically laughed. Again, that speaks to the different you emerging as a slightly different person, because prior to that, I laughed a lot. Maybe some of it very sincerely, maybe some of it more Hollywood, you know, who knows. But I certainly was doing a lot of smiling and laughing prior to the surgery. And uh, smiling was painful, as you can imagine, because that's where all the surgery was. You smile, you can feel all the muscles being used, and it was that was in a lot of pain. So I wasn't doing a lot of that for the first uh, year or so. Once you start smiling and the pain starts to subside, at some point, the new normal sets in. And what was the new normal as you progressed in your recovery? You know, certain things that were so enjoyable prior to surgery and prior to the diagnosis that just seem now trivial or uninteresting to you and things that you weren't interested in before now became conventional. Great question. The answer is any day now. Fingers crossed any day now. Does that make sense? A little bit, if you could elaborate. <laughs> Again, it's never a clear cut. Sometimes it's it's cyclical. So some days it just feels like, oh, I recognize that person. I'm totally me. Or I don't even think about it. I'm just back to being, you know, on the road to being ambitious about this or that or having business conversations about that or creating or producing that. And then some days you're back in it. Um, if, if I, I hope nobody, by the way, this is a heck of a conversation for fanboy nation. Kudos to any of your listeners <laughs> who are hanging in there for this because this is hardly, a fa- you know, comic con stuff. Uh, it's, it's, so, so lovely of you to be asking these questions, because at one point or another, I think everybody in their life is going to face some version of some unknowable or unknown that they have to then grapple with that that is not pleasant or fun. But um, if you've ever if you personally, Robert, have ever experienced uh, grief of losing someone that you loved, I have. Yeah. then, you know, then, you know, it's it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. Some days it takes a while first to even get to the point of any sense of normalcy because that person was still there with you. That person still, you can't even believe you can't call them up and talk to them that they no longer exist. It's so surreal. No matter how many times we've seen it in the movies, if it's not you going through it, you don't know what that feels like. And when it hits you, most of us experience it as an unknowingness. Like I, I don't even know how to process this. And then once you get past that and accept it and, and it, becomes part of your reality, then it's cyclical. And some some days you feel close to back to being yourself because you've moved through the grief. And then in some days you're right back into it and horribly missing the person and can, can barely breathe, depending on how close they were to you. And um, 
even someone who's been through a very painful heartbreak. I, I used to joke, I used to, um, but prior to being sick, I had been coaching some um, celebrities who were young and not yet of the acting world. They were celebrities in another part of the entertainment world, and they were trying to cross over into acting. And one of the questions I would ask them, I started to ask them was, have you ever had your heart broken? Because these these were people in their mid-20s. And it depends on the person, right? If some people manage to make it through their 20s without ever really quite getting to the part of being in such a deep relationship that they their heart is broken. But once you felt that feeling, at least then you understand what people mean when they say heartbroken. Prior to that, it's this sort of hallmark amorphous term that you don't really relate to, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And even from heartbreak, I mean, even as a 15 year old, I remember there were days I didn't want to eat or sleep. It was like my life was over. Hence, Romeo and Juliet. You know, it's like everything relied on that person. Well, I'm and, glad you didn't kill yourself at 15 over some 16 year old uh, cute guy. Exactly. But I'm, I'm saying it's it's relative and everybody experiences it as being very, very real at the time that that's going on. So I use that as an analogy for someone who's never been terminally ill or had to deal with something serious in a sense it's it's like that you're it's cyclical and um but of course on a deep uh, a deeper more uh, atomic level molecular molecular level is you feel the grief and the darkness very deep down some days and some days it's like you're back to almost who you were before and um the more healing you're willing to do and that's an important part of what i'm addressing with people is you have to, the cliche is you have to go through it. You can't go around it. And that's absolutely true. Although most people in America have been conditioned to go around it. Most people don't want to face the darkness head on. Most people are so afraid to face their own demons or face their own theoretical ugliness inside or what they're feeling that they, they won't go through it. Um, fortunately, for better or for worse, I was thrown so far down. In a sense, I guess it's, I, fortunately, I've never faced this darkness. I've never been an addict. So, but many addicts will know what I mean when I say you, you have to hit rock bottom. In a sense, I was from the outside, from the universe, from the universal point of view, I was thrown rock bottom so far down that I had nowhere to go but up. I made the choice somehow slowly to pick myself back up and work my way through it so that hopefully I would come back to being some version of alive and myself. And that's what I think it's going to be like for anybody who's faced grief, serious grief or serious illness is you have to work your way through it and not have high expectations on yourself. Hopefully. Let's hope. How do you find empathy again then? Uh, when Senator John McCain was alive, we know he was a POW and I'm not getting political. I'm just using him as an example. And his empathy level was low after being a POW for however, you know, many months that he was one. You recovering from the surgery and taking your time to get healthy and getting you to the point where you are now, where were you able to find empathy for other people's suffering that seemed so trivial in comparison to your own? Oh, um, you know, like someone not getting the right dress for the wedding yeah. versus, you know. Well, first of all, it's an interesting question. Nobody's asked me that. Um, I, <laughs> so 
the best way I know how to answer it is I was very aware while I was going through radiation, which was about three and a half months after the initial recovery. So the first, when you're first out of surgery, you go through what's called hard healing, which is the actual body putting itself back together again. And if you have treatments that are going to be required, like chemo or radiation after the fact, they have to wait for the body to heal well enough to be able to handle the, the poisoning you're about to face, the, the, you know, elective poisoning of the body, whether it's radiation or chemo, if that makes any sense. So once I was done with the hard healing, I then went into radiation, eight weeks of hard radiation. And um, while I was in that, I became acutely aware of the fact that as miserable as I felt, and as much as I may want to feel sorry for what I was dealing with, I was surrounded by people who had far worse. Anybody who's gone through radiation or been been through that with somebody, and boy, this is a downer of a conversation for a minute. No, it's not. I'm completely intrigued. <laughs> Better haunted mansion, I'll tell you that. Um, anybody who's gone through this knows you sit in a waiting room, very upscale, lovely, elegant waiting rooms. Um, in my case, it was very upscale. But nevertheless, you're surrounded by families and other people who are going through their own version of cancer and recovery. And you literally literally are face to face, not theoretically, but literally sitting across from somebody who's got it far worse. I, I was at least. So I was very aware coming out of it, going into it, too. But in but in reality, facing it, seeing a seven year old who we just knew was probably not going to make it. And that teaches you very quickly. I hope it teaches one very quickly, not only empathy, but hopefully some sort of idea like I got, which was if I ever make it through this, I'm going to be volunteering a lot at pediatric wards, which is what I've been doing on Sundays at L.A. Children's and a few other places. As miserable as I felt, I was lucky. And I was seeing that literally in the flesh. And there's nothing worse than seeing a parent looking at their little one and watching the parent. I mean, God, that's a, that's a heartbreak that nobody can put into words. So I would like to think I was learning some version of empathy pretty early on. As far as the, the trip, more trivial things that life throws at us, it's all subjective. I mean, I hate to say it, but there's some days where my computer goes out and I'm acting like, you know, momentarily like Armageddon just hit. And then at least I've got the perspective to remind myself, hey, kiddo, this is nothing. <laughs> you will make it through this technological glitch. But at the at the moment, it feels very real. And I, I didn't emerge as Gandhi. I didn't emerge so completely Zen that I'm not affected by the little things every now and again. And I'm still in Hollywood. I'm still luckily, knock on wood, so blessed to be employed by Hollywood. And we all know that it's got its own emergencies and deadlines and crises. So in, in the psychological world in in the, in that circle, it's scientifically quantified as self-involvement. What level of self-involvement has one moved past? And when we're children, we're all about ourselves. We can't even, most children can't even see past their own needs. That's, that's part of being a child. And then you sort of eventually somewhere between the age of, and it depends again on one's life circumstance, but somewhere between the age of nine and 16, hopefully one starts to realize that there's others and other needs outside of oneself. 
and, and becomes attuned to that. We hope, uh, be that as it may, it's sort of the level of self-involvement. And when one is dealing with serious trauma internally, it's harder to turn your focus outward because you're just trying to survive. So I think that's more to the point of at what point does one start to stop themselves regularly on a daily basis and go, it's not just about me. And of course, any mom knows what I'm talking about. And most dads, it's no longer about you. It's about that little one screaming in the other room. We all we all have different lessons along the way as to how much we start to learn to look outside of ourselves. How does the TED Talk come about? And how do you prep for something that is so revealing to the world? Well, first of all, these are great questions, and I really hope the Fanboy Nation audience is is still with us here. I only say that because we steal some of your articles from my social media, and uh, you know, most of them are, are deep dives on the meaning of you know the science of Spider Man, or <laughs> you know. So this is very refreshing. By the way, that is one of my primary obsessions: is uh, the science of Spider Man right. and the the character arc of Spider Man and its mitigation through the MCU. But that's a whole other conversation we can get into. Um, I, I think I wanted to separate out the Ted talk. I was so honored to do. That's a singular experience. If, if you're lucky to be invited to do one and it rarely happens. So it's considered, um, it it is such an honor to have been asked to do one. And that happened two months ago. I was very honored to be asked and I was lucky to be a part of a rock star cast of speakers. They, they had about 12 speakers. And they ranged from an NBA several time all star, five time all star to a, a Olympic gold medalist to a NASA, a NASA aerospace engineer to I was the one entertainer of the bunch. And so it, it was a really wide, wide net. And we were all talking about different things around the theme of time. The, the theme this year was time. And so we didn't, the important thing about a TED talk. Is it supposed to not be about yourself? It's supposed to be about an idea that your own journey has gotten you to that you then can share with others. I didn't address during my uh, eight minute talk this, what we're talking about. I addressed an idea that had emerged from it, which was a, actually a really a fun one, which is that you, you must waste time to live a full life. You absolutely must put, put aside time to waste and enjoy and disconnect from your cell phone and from the news. You need to just selfishly spend some time doing exactly what you want to be doing so that when you come back to real life, which will happen too soon for all of us after that hour or day or weekend, you're more productive and empowered because you've given yourself a breather. That's what my talk was about. And how have you been able to give yourself those breathers then? Well, ironically, uh, this weekend was my first one since everything. I actually got invited to a beautiful glamping destination in Santa Barbara that um, read my story. And miraculously, uh, they heard what the theme of my TED Talk was and reached out playfully and said, have you taken your own have you taken your own break? And I've been so busy just putting my life back together that truthfully, Coming out of everything, I haven't really taken that time. I haven't felt I had the luxury of that because I was making up for so much lost time. And so uh, this weekend was the first one. And it was amazing. <laughs> and what did you do? I went glamping, although it's... Well, what's glamping exactly? Oh, glamping is camping, but 
uh, not so completely cut off from modern convenience that you're completely, you know, cause I've been, I've been camping. Like I used to go up into the Sierras with a group where you literally are just, it's what, it's what's in your knapsack, right? And you're up at the top of the mountain and that's it. No modern convenience other than tents and fire. But, um, this glamping is when you are in a, like we're out in a, I'm out in a beautiful woods wilderness in a little log cabin. You have to cook your own food, which is pretty cool. Like I can't remember the last time making breakfast took an hour and a half. That's what it took to get all of the elements finally cooked. And it was awesome because it slows life down and you remind yourself of a whole bunch of other things that you forgot from Girl Scout camp back when you were nine. So that's what glamping is. And I got to do that this weekend and it was awesome. Sounds like fun. It was fun. Some of it was a pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking Cooking over an open fire. I mean, aside from s'mores, I haven't done it since Girl Scout camp when I was nine. And it's really hard to get everything right where it's edible. And uh, but it was a lot of fun figuring it out. And there was a lot of moments of like the entire omelet ending up in the fire and having to start from scratch again. And you just stare at it for a moment and go, well, that was an awesome moment. So so Ted, so that's what a TED talk was. I think what you're asking about is the more general public speaking, keynote speaking that I started to go out on and what that's what's what that is emerging as. I think that's what your question was. Well, I think we start with the TED talk that leads to the public speaking. Oh, OK. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. You know, now these public speaking engagements have uh, become a huge part of your life. What goes on with these things at, at this point? Because you've experienced so much. Um, there have been a few other voice actors recently that have put out books about their their situation and coming out about it. What could we expect from your story at these events? And, you know, how many boxes of tissues do you need on stage? Because this is some heavy stuff that we're dealing with. <laughs> Well, first of all, I've just started the the journey, and and anybody who's on the keynote, do, do you know anybody personally who's an who's a full time speaker? Because it's a very different world from entertainment. It's it's not at all. They're not related, interestingly enough. Other than the other only people th- I know are clergy. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's probably a whole different kind of <laughs> public speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been a really interesting, so it's been about a year of me educating myself and dialoguing with people in that world, and it is quite astonishing. It was um, a major wake-up call to me that not only uh, is it its own skill set, of course it's its own skill set, but it's also a completely different industry. And aside from, you know, there are, of course, celebrities who are hired to do keynote speaking from time to time, you know, they well, maybe they'll pay, fill in your favorite celebrity's name to go speak at Microsoft's yearly summit, you know, for X number of dollars. But that's that's different. That's where they're bringing in the celebrity for the fun of their name and for their what they're bringing to the table. Or maybe they'll pay Bill Gates, you know, three point five million dollars to come speak at some some summit for some Japanese technology or something. I'm making this up, by the way, but those happen, you know, where a great a great sum of money is spent on someone with their famous name. Right. And that's different from someone who's going out just on their own uh, journey speaking. So what I've come to keep learning, starting with the TED Talks, which was a great a great crash course in this. But it's not about it can't be about you if it's going to be interesting. 
And that may sound like an oxymoron, but I'm not being paid to spend 45 minutes talking about myself because they can read about that and they can watch interviews on it or they can hear Fanboy Nation's amazing podcast on me about that. What they're bringing a speaker in is for some useful tools, something to come out of that that the audience can apply and do something with, if that makes any sense. So, and again, I'm differentiating from the, from the celebrities who are hired to come out and talk about what it's like to work in Hollywood or when I was on the set of this Marvel movie, this is, you know, that's different. That's entertainment, keynote speaking more, more so. Um, I'm not saying those people don't have great ideas to share, by the way, but the point of bringing someone like that in is more for the name value and the fun and entertainment value versus what most of the speaking, keynote speaking is about is what are they going to be bringing to the table that our organization or our group of people can do something with. So you have to sort of reverse engineer and ask yourself, out of everything that I've gone through, what is a worthwhile takeaway for someone else? And what can they do with it? Um, Because hopefully, God willing, no one's ever going to follow exactly in what I went through. I hope no one does. But at least if they do, now there's a roadmap of me sharing it. And that was part of the sort of turning the corner of do I go public with this? And that that took a lot of people saying to me over the years, you really got to share this. I mean, this is stranger than fiction, what you went through, and you really have to. But I was afraid to, and I wasn't ready to, and I barely even knew what my own story was. So it took a while for me to wrap my head around that. And then once you're willing to come out with it, if you choose to go speaking with it, then it has to be something completely different than it has to be, okay, that's an interesting anecdote. That's fascinating. But how is it relevant to other people? And that's the whole point of a, a good, a good public speaking. A good public speaker is what are they bringing to the table that, that anyone can walk away from that and feel like they've got some tools or some information that's new and what it, you know, gives them something useful to do with it. I hope I'm putting that right, by the way, because I am new to this world and I am completely, I have tremendous humility and understanding that I am brand new to it and I have a lot to learn as I make my way through it. I've been very blessed to do a few of them already and people have been so gracious. I'm lucky, I guess, that I have years and years of Shakespeare training and theater training in me because at least, uh, you know, I've got some understanding of interpersonal live dynamic with an audience, maybe. But it is very different when you're just talking about real stuff. I don't have a Shakespeare soliloquy to hide behind or a character to hide behind. So it's, it's a whole different animal and I'm learning it. I'm learning it. And I've been very, very blessed to have some great managers and support system, uh, mentors too. very, some very famous, successful keynote speakers who have been pushing me for a year to figure this out. But ironically, you know, when I asked them first, Oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that, but what would it take? Their response is, well, you got to do this, 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 you got to do that, and then you got to do that. And it's just like anything else. You go, well, that's going to take years. If I want to do this like next year, how do I do it? And the answer is, well, and make a living at it? You're not. It's like any great craft. It's going to take years to really build up to being, a, a, you know, a respectable entity in that, unless you're lucky enough to be born into it. And what's the one thing that you learned about yourself that you were most surprised about? That is a good question. Um, what is the one thing I've learned about myself? 
I've probably learned a lot of things that have surprised me or not, you know, that I've learned a lot about my limitations, about um, what I need to work on, what, how much more there is to go. I would say it's, it's probably like that cliche, you know, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. I'd say it's probably some version of that because I, I was very cocky the way we all are in our younger, ambitious, you know, for, if we're lucky enough to succeed at something, there's some level of assuredness that kicks in. I'm, cocky may not be the right word, although I hate to say I probably was about certain things, thought that I really had something down. And what you discover through something like this is you don't know anything. There's so much more to learn about all of it. Whatever it is you think you've got licked, <laughs> there's always going to be someone who knows way more and who's got a be- way better handle on it. That's at least where that's as far as I've gotten in terms of the learning curve. And what are the little things that make you happy now in comparison to what you used to just be flippant about? It didn't seem like such a big deal. And now you're just thrilled anytime the opportunity shows up. I'm just I mean, I don't want this to sound like a cliche or like I'm Gandhi. Truthfully, for the most part, I'm just so freaking grateful. <laughs> and it's more aimed at just the universe. Like, OK, that really sucked, but I'm so grateful to be here. And again, I'm not trying to sound like a saint because, like I said, I can freak out and get one of the things that anybody who's come through trauma has to deal with is post-traumatic stress. That is just the reality of it. If you've been faced with serious trauma and and that's a quantifiable like real trauma where life has stopped, whatever, whatever has created that, if you face it. And of course, we know veterans, war veterans go through some version of it. We know people who have lost significant others. And have contemplated, you know, some version of ending things. That's trauma. Um, it, it can come in different shapes and forms, but it is if it's a if it's a medical version of trauma, you're always going to be dealing with the post traumatic stress. Um, it doesn't just go away. And so I think that what I've learned is that even in the moments of anxiety, um, moments of great questioning, that at least. I've learned that if you just keep taking baby steps and keep moving forward in an incremental amount, you will come through it enough that you can move on to the next step of it. Now, again, that's for me personally, and I don't want to put that on anybody. Everybody's got their own way of handling and everybody's got their own unique journey. But it seems to me like the sanest way to deal with something that feels unknowable or undoable is to take a deep breath, stop for a moment. Don't react. Uh, try as best to contain the emotional reaction and just try to figure out what the next baby step is. And maybe it will take 10 steps or 20 steps to finally find your way through it. But to get it down to that incremental moment of just try to find your way to the next moment. And of course, again, addicts and I, I haven't been through a 12 step program, but I know a lot of people who have. That's, of course, part of it. Right. One day at a time. And I think anybody coming through any recovery, it's in a sense that it's taking the baby steps. And some people, depending on the trauma they experienced, it's it's in leaps and bounds. Maybe they maybe their life never truly stopped. Maybe maybe they had a serious illness, but it was never that everything came to a complete halt. Or maybe someone lost someone near and dear to them. But for whatever reason, their makeup was to just keep moving forward anyway. Everybody's different. By the way, when I went when I first was diagnosed in 2012, fan cons were not nearly as big a deal for voiceover talent. 
most of us, most of us weren't doing them regularly. They were something that either people who had already achieved great success and were the Harrison Fords of the world were doing um, because they were so huge that they were being flown all over the world to appear at a panel or something. Or they were people who um, were no longer active in what they were doing, but now were famous for it. And so they were, you know, that's that's what they were doing with the next part of their life. But it wasn't something that was regular. And then when I emerged finally whole and back to being, you know, five years later, being a voiceover talent, suddenly everybody was doing them <laughs> who, who had credits. And it's so it's it's such an astonishing change. And I'm I'm still getting wrapping my head around it with doing I'm doing one in a month for the you know big celebration for the Haunted Mansion and the fact that I'm a, a luckily you know a big character from the Haunted Mansion my voice my voices so I'm probably saying that wrong but I'm lucky to be the voice of a famous character in the Haunted Mansion the classic mansion and so it's still weird for me a to charge fans it's so odd to have someone say that'll be thirty dollars to take a sell it, to me it's like I'm just so lucky to be alive. I feel like sure take a picture with me. But I, I know that there's an organizing element to it that has to happen. It's it's that's still new to me and still kind of odd. So I would say my encounters every day I'm still learning things about and playing catch up in a certain sense. And then in some in some things don't change. You know, I think uh in animation and video games good good voice acting will always mean Someone who's got some level of great acting experience and life experience behind them for that to come through in the voice. Uh, so thankfully that's still there. And thankfully I'm well enough that I'm lucky to, to still be doing that. And on the beginning of this, the speaker's world, which has been very welcoming and very, um, for the most part warm in saying, yeah, this is a heck of a story and we're interested in your lens and what you have to share. So I'm hoping to see where that takes it. Mostly at this point, my main goal is to make sure that nobody ever feels as alone, you know, hopefully, uh, if they're able to access my story, that they know that they're not crazy to feel what they're feeling, that they're not the first one to ever go through it, um, that that there will be a lot of learning curves through it, but you can hopefully find your way through it. And of course, there's some people who sadly will be given a diagnosis that will be truthful that they there probably won't be a recovery and and that breaks my heart and to to those people unfortunately my story doesn't quite intersect obviously so i can't really speak to to comforting those people but my hope is that anybody who does have a shot at emerging on the other end doesn't feel as alone and knows that they can fight for it i'm thrilled to have spoken with you about this you, you know the haunted mansion thing i want to touch on just real quick sure what's it like going to disneyland or disney world and just riding the ride and all of a sudden you hear yourself talking back to you. <laughs> um, it's weird. I mean, they definitely process. They did some beautiful. The Imagineers are geniuses and they did some beautiful processing with it. So it's got some ghostly, otherworldly sound effects. I was told at one point that this may have been urban myth, but I was told there were 30 layers, subtle layers of sound effects going on underneath it. That may be an exaggeration or that may be true. But it's certainly recognizable as my voice. It, like it wasn't so processed that I don't hear it and go, yeah, that's that's me being playful. So it's it's I will say for me, unfortunately, the the emotional experience I have is I get disconnected from the story of the mansion momentarily because I can't avoid the fact that's me. And so uh, sometimes I've closed my ears <laughs> going to the attic. 
I just don't want to get sort of that weird sensation. But I don't know how other people experience something like that. But for me, it momentarily takes me out of the story. Um, and then sometimes people want to ride with me on it. And I'm like, nah, take your own doom buggy because it'll be better because you, you won't, you know, it takes you out of the story for a moment if, if you're sitting next to the person who's the voice of that, I think. So, um, it's, I feel very blessed to be one of the lucky people who's got that experience. And I don't know how other people experience it, but mine is like, yeah, that's my voice. So, um, and then, and then I, hopefully can get back into the experience because it's such a great Pirates of the Caribbean and, and the Haunted Mansion are two of the, or I guess a lot of people say Caribbean, right? I was raised on the East coast, so it's Caribbean, but I think out here it's Caribbean. Those are such classic attractions where the storytelling is so beautiful, man, those Imagineers, they knew their ish <laughs> and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't get any better than that in terms of a classic Disney attraction. Um, there's great, there's some really great adrenaline pumpers that, you know, I love Big Thunder and I love Space Mountain. Could go on that five times in a row. But, but they're not about storytelling. Those are more about the physical, um, visceral experience. So, I mean, there is some storytelling aspects to it, but not as much. You know, the pirates and Haunted Mansion are such immersive, imaginative experiences that, uh, if you're lucky, if one is lucky enough to be a voice in it, I would think for a moment one goes, oh, yeah, that's me. And then it sort of yanks you out of the story for a moment. So that's that's been my experience of it. But I feel very, very blessed and uh, definitely humbled by it because I'm I'm only the smallest element of it. There was years and years and years of imaginary that went into any anything that's part of a Disney attraction. Yeah, I'm so thrilled I got to chat with you today. Where can everybody find you on social media and where is your next public speaking engagement? If it's anywhere close to them that they want to get tickets for. <laughs> um, my, so my Twitter is just my name, Kat Cressida, Kat with a K, Cressida with a C. My Instagram is also Kat Cressida. My Facebook where all the cool stuff is going on is the, is the wall, which is cat dot Cressida, that little dot in the middle of my two names. And I've got a great speaking website now that's up that talks about my story and has all the great articles and some of the podcasts up now. And that's catcressidaspeaks.com. The only reason we have that is that everything else we could think of was taken. So, uh, I, I hated that for the longest time. It sounded so arrogant, like catcressidaspeaks.com, but it's all that wasn't taken yet. So that's where you can find that part of the world and and what I'm up to speaking engagement wise, you get flown around to do those. So I don't think anybody anywhere close to Los Angeles can see that in the near future because one is in Kentucky and the other is in upstate New York. They're summits for big organizations. Thank you so much for the honor, Robert, of, of amazing questions and a really beautifully eloquent, relaxed um, amount of time to get through all of this. I, I thank your thank all of you for listening. I'll bet it's not what you signed up for when you first started listening to this, but um, hopefully it will be of some value to you guys. It's been, it's definitely been a value to me and some eye opening stuff. So thank you so much, Kat. I look forward to seeing you at a convention in the near future. <laughs> oh, Midsummer yeah. Scream. Those are the fan conventions. If someone wants to actually, that's coming up soon. That's Midsummer Scream in Long Beach, California. That's a horror, big horror convention. And then there's a couple of other Haunted Mansion theme events that are also coming up. Yeah, I am such a wuss when it comes to horror stuff. Me too. 
<laughs> it scares me. So yeah, but you're also not six three. Uh, like people run to hide behind you for certain things. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'm like, you guys go first. I'll follow you in. Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting being at a horror convention where people have like an axe sticking out of their head walking around. But, but the truth is, the horror fans are some of the nicest fans you'll ever encounter. Absolutely. And the Disney addicts are my favorite people in the world, so I can't wait to meet a bunch of them. Will you be at D23 this year? Um, I don't know yet. Uh, actually, on the anniversary of the Haunted Mansion, which is the 13th, is when I'm doing my one of my first speaking engagements, so I'll be out of town for that. Um, and D23, which is at the end of August, I'm not 100% sure yet, because there's some other conversations in, in action right now. Kat, thank you again so much for your time, and I will be in contact soon. Thank you so much, Robert. Have a good day. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Tell me about Electra because the game just dropped this week for Marvel Alliance. I believe it was three. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I wasn't allowed to talk about it for a full, I think, year. Wow. <laughs> um, they're very strict about that, understandably. But that's a, that's a mega game that just dropped through uh, Marvel Games. I think it's in t- Nintendo Switch, I think is what it is. Yeah, it's on the Nintendo Switch. People... People have been hooking them up to their TVs and just playing from there. Yes. And uh, so that just dropped right in the middle of FanCon. Uh, sorry, Comic-Con. Yeah. Boom. Uh, on Friday. And uh, what what's really cool is that actually the writer of the game has been shouting out specific characters and actors, and he shouted me out. And, and then the VP of Marvel Games also sent me a very sweet DM. So it seems to be a big hit, and Electra. I think because of the nature of the game, which is the Black Order, I think is a subtitle of the game. Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 colon the Black Order, something like that. Um, but so Electra figures into it uh, somewhat prominently, and that's been a, a joy to voice her again. And it's great because the um, Daredevil series was, was such a hit on Netflix that the tie-in is right there and the, uh, the character is still in everybody's uh, um, foreground. Yeah. Yeah, because I understand for this one, they've got everybody in the kitchen sink. Like every Marvel hero that's ever recorded a video game ever. <laughs> God brought that for this one. So, wow. uh, yeah, huge, huge honor to do her. What's it like when you get the shout out from the creating the creative staff? Because they put so much work into writing and, and, and designing the character. When you come in to voice the character, you know, do they feel that it's – is it – um, something where you feel greater recognition because you feel like you did them justice? I, I, I'm such a, when that happens, it's one of the few times I really get excited about tweeting. Um, because while I, I love what, you know, what social media does, I'm, I'm probably like a live count where, you know, to keep up the engagement is important, but it also, you have to stop everything for a moment to just, make sure you're focusing and sending out something intelligent to the universe that's going to stay up there and get retweeted. And that tends to be one of the few times that I'm like genuinely like, oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's only, I think there's only been about like a handful of those where like 
the phone dropped out of my hand because I was just so excited. One was Dennis Leary engaging with me um, because I shouted out his performance from Spider-Man and that fireman series, Rescue Me. And he said something really, really hilarious and sarcastic with profanity directed sort of at making fun of himself, but, but loving the fact that I noticed his performances and shouted out. So that was really cool. And then um, let's see who else. Annika Rose who was the boy, the Broadway Emmy winner from Dream Girls, who also was uh, Princess Tiana from the Princess and the Frog. Film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she she's did some great stuff. Uh, James Eigelhart, who won the Tony for playing the genie in Aladdin. Um, he personally tweeted out a, a whole bunch of stuff to me because he was a fan of my voice work from The Haunted Mansion. And now he's starring in Jefferson. So uh, that's pretty cool. And then uh, and then things like that, where the writers and the director of the uh, of a video game or a project actually, you know, shout out, you know, great, great work, Kat, your performance, really, whatever he. And then I, apparently I have a scream that's blood curdling in Marvel Alliance, that Ultimate Alliance that got shouted out as well. So that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, I asked this question a lot at Comic-Con and I should ask you as well. Uh, you're so, you're so used to being in either your home studio, which typically is four feet by four feet or, you know, in a larger studio, say either at Warner brothers or Disney or wherever, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's a little more ventilation, a little more space and these padded rooms, um, you know, it's just you, the microphone, the director and the engineer typically. What's it like when you step out, say to a convention or, to an event that you're invited to and people will say, Oh, you know, you as Electra changed my life or the other character you voiced over here changed my life and give you the spiel on how you were able to affect them in a way that you never thought possible because you were just in either by a four by four or a 10 by 10 room. Well, that, there was a lot in there. Uh, so, uh, I'll try <laughs> I, I get the gist of it, though. I think, I mean, honestly, I, for me, it's still weird and always will be weird to charge someone to have a conversation with me about these things or to take a picture with me. I get that there's a whole culture and a reason for that. And I get that part of it is, you know, protection and safety and organization and proper staffing. You know, it makes sense to me why why that all has to be in place. But it's still I'm still new enough to it. I didn't start doing this because of everything that I was coming back from, you know, that whole other part of my story. Um, I didn't really start this until about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit late to the game on what has been in place for regular working voice talent for the past five or six years when it really became widespread. Mm -hmm. Um, I way early on before star Wars came back, uh, fabulous, uh, Hamill himself, Mark Hamill and I were in a record session. Again, this is when his main focus was voiceover because Star Wars, he didn't know that it was going to reemerge in his future the way that it hit big. Um, you know, when it dropped, yeah. when The Force Awakens dropped and all of that, when they, when they rebooted everything. So he was explaining to me that for him, uh, it's, it's always, it's a big thing. You know, people literally will say to him, you changed my life. And quite honestly, it definitely had an effect on me back when I was a, a wee tot and saw it for the first time. 
Um, I don't know if it was life changing, but it definitely okay. made a huge impact on my heart, you know, right. in terms of it being a, a modern retelling of the King Arthur fable and all of that. So I understand it and I understand, I, I get it. There's probably two or three actors that I would say that to. Um, not, not because of a, a fan franchise, but because of the quality of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, literally, Two, two females where I would probably lose my ish mm-hmm. if I were to be in the same space with them. Um, and so I understand, you know, er, these things affect people. And if they're young enough uh, and it's at the time that they're really shaping their idea about the world, it can have a big impact. I never really think that the voice work that I've done is the reason mm-hmm. for any of that. I, I give the major credit to um, the creators. Because they're the ones, again, in voiceover, we're, we're the voice. We're just the voice. And we're very lucky to be the the voice talent that was selected for that character. And I mean that. Um, so that character has been germinating in the creator's mind, whether it's the director or the producers or the writers or all three or both all together, um, for far longer than before I came to be part of the project. So I don't take credit for that, whether it's D.D., or, you know, any particular video game character I've been lucky enough to voice, or even The Bride in the Haunted Mansion, that, that's all somebody else who created all that and directed me to deliver that performance. So I always feel like, well, thank you so much. But whether I say it out loud or secretly to my heart, I always remind myself, and that wasn't really you. <laughs> that wasn't, um, I think, Harrison Ford or Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher. God rest her soul, or any any of those people are far more a contributor to the final image, hmm. and therefore, um, you know, they certainly I can understand why someone would hurl themselves and you know genuflect in front of them and say, "You changed my world forever." But I always feel like I'm just a lucky voice. I hope that answers your question it does. thoroughly, and it does weird me out sometimes. Of course, if people you know, taking a selfie, burst into tears, which happens occasionally, <laughs> or, you know, feel like they don't deserve to be in the same space as me. I, uh, everybody deserves to be in everybody's space. And, and the cliche is if it weren't for the lovers of a franchise, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't resonate. So it's really, everybody deserves equal credit for a character being a big deal. Right. Makes perfect sense. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to touch on this. Uh, you you have your own hero's journey. Um, how many people have said that you've aspired them with what you've gone through? Yeah, that's the part that really, that's where I tear up. And that's, again, this is brand new. You are one of the first major media outlets I've been lucky enough to really go into in depth with that. There's only been a handful so far. And then some bigger ones, as I just shared with you, are going to be coming up very shortly uh, on camera. But in terms of uh, even after the TED Talk, which, by the way, is now live, um, would be so honored if you would share that with everybody because those Absolutely. eight minutes have been uh, – that went viral, and I'm deeply honored to get the res- the comments and the responses have been, for me, uh, life-altering because it took a lot for me to get to the point of sharing it. And now that I've come out with it, about my dark, you know, my journey through the dark side and back and what it took to uh, hang in there for 
all the crazy twists and turns through that wonderland, it really is lovely to have people say to me, that made a difference. This gives me the courage to reach out and do something, or this gives me the courage to hang in there. And thank you for making me feel less whatever, fill in the blank. I had one nurse, uh, an actual nurse at a major hospital, reach out to me and say, I'm going to be sharing this with every patient who who I have to comfort because if someone like you, and I think what he meant by that was, you know, what they assume in the glorified world of Hollywood, which of course we all know is like every other world. It just happens to have more tinsel on it. But if someone like you can go through what you went through and have these hard fights and come through, it gives hope, I think, to a lot of other people. And again, I just feel really humbled by that because I didn't have, I didn't have a story to refer to or a book or an article or a video to reference when I was going through it all. I was sort of the unfortunate pioneer of this unique journey, right. uh, this particular, for this particular uh, form of cancer. And so it it's very uh, heartwarming to know that it's for something, that it's going to hopefully help other people. And um, I didn't suffer through all that for it just to end with me surviving, it actually may help other people to have an easier time of it or a less lonely time of it. Kat, after Mm -hmm. having faced such an invasive surgery and the healing process as to how long it's taken for you, Mm -hmm. do you ever zero in on the remnants of those scarring or do you look at yourself in the whole as being Kat and being able to move forward from what you endured? Wow, that's a really deep and a really good question and one definitely worth answering. Um, well, uh, so of course we live in America mm-hmm. and of course I live and work in Hollywood and I'm very blessed to, to live and work in Hollywood and, and feel that way. And of course there's still uh, different standards for women and men. Um, one day we all hope You know, for me, too, I was raised in a culture where physical beauty mattered, um, where women were still getting prizes for how they looked. There continue to be beauty pageants, of course, and there don't quite there's not quite the same for for men. So there still is a bit of a difference in how women and men are judged. And I'd probably be not telling the truth if I said I'm not still aware of that. And so it does still matter on some level. Um, maybe in 20 or 30 years, girls and boys will not be raised to look at that first and foremost or be such an important part of uh, their external appearance. So, yes, I do occasionally still notice and see that. And there are some days where I notice it more than others. Uh, fortunately, and I, and I think I'm being really truthful when I say this, there are some days where I no longer focus in on that and where I'm just so grateful to be where I am now, so grateful to be working with the kids at LA Children's or Make-A-Wish or wherever. I'm fortunate to put that time in where you just don't see that and you're more just focused on where am I now in my life and am I achieving what I'm hoping to be achieving? Uh, I will say, for better or for worse, the double-edged sword of all this is I tend to not see uh, quite as superficially as I did through superficial lens the way I did before as much. Um, and, 
and I definitely am, am grateful to be seeing what I'm seeing now, more so than I when I first came out of it, where that was all that I could focus on. Um, but that's being human, or at least in the American, you know, in the Western culture, that's I think understandable and human. And I have worked hard to uh, just kind of keep moving forward. I hope I hope that that sounds like an authentic answer to your very good question. It does. I like that a lot. Thank you so much, Kat. Yeah, of course.